Greetings one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you too, The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymichaelidis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Winwood, The Cramps, U2, etc, etc. We also have some great stories from some industry insiders. Right, intro done, on with the show. There's a whole bunch of rock stars who work behind the scenes, and they have some great stories. Insider Insights takes you inside their world for their stories and their rock star moments. And on today's Moments That Rock Insider Insights, part two of Dave Robinson. If you missed the first one, go back and find it wherever you source your podcasts, part one with Dave Robinson. I won't go on any further about him. Dave's a great raconteur. He's been around through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and he's still around. In today's episode, he tells you what he thinks of the bands that were around at the time, and that he moved into being basically a pioneer for pub rock in the UK, and especially the start of it all with Brinsley Swartz. Dave Robinson. There was a band called Gentle Giant, and that's what they did. They were gentle, and then they were giant. It was fucking amazing listening to them and then them talking about it intellectually as if they discovered some huge i mean i couldn't believe this garbage i'd been in america i'd seen muddy waters i'd seen you know the way america treated its musicians and its great musicians and i thought something like that should be possible in the uk i mean there was tamla motown so you thought well somebody got this together and I was trying to do that. Luckily, out of all that, that the Brindley started in the pubs, I managed to uh, book a lot of those pubs and uh, ended up at Brindley, who were incredibly live, incredible live band. Nick Lowe on bass, Brindley Schwartz on guitar, uh, Billy Rankin on drums, Ian Gom on guitar. And they were, they were an incredible group and they played some great stuff and people remember them now they uh gave me the impetus to discover a lot of bands which then went on to form stiff records so all those groups that the majors didn't want they didn't you know they thought pub rock was a joke and it was an unfortunate name some journalists inevitably gave it to <laughs> gave it to but, you know, there is a, the amount of alcohol that you need <laughs> in a lot of situations with bands. And Stiff was the start of all the guys who wrote great songs, but were not perhaps oil paintings and didn't color their hair, didn't <laughs> wear platform shoes and really just played some good music. So we had Elvis Costello, we had Ian Dury, we had a lot of people from that era and time on stiff records madness came from that place and <coughs> excuse me that's uh, what launched 10 years of stiff which people look back on now i'm always amazed by how fond they are of that period as you know at the end of 10 years chris blackwell came to me and wanted to 
me to run Ireland. And in order to swing me into the idea, he said he'd buy half of Stiff. You know, it turned out to be complete bollocks. You know, I had to lend him the money to buy the shares. The Ireland had no money whatsoever. They're totally broke. In actual fact, if their business affairs people had really been paying attention, they should have wound the company up. It was totally insolvent. And, uh, you know, I ran, I ran well with that. I mean, the great thing about it is I got a, I got a chance to do Legend by Bob Marley, one of my favorite all times. Uh, I did a bit of U2 to push them over the uh, kind of platinum bridge. Frankie goes to Hollywood, um, you know, but all the other people were leaving Ireland in droves, you know, Steve Winwood, Robert Palmer. So there wasn't really a lot going on. And Chris double-crossed me at the end of the day uh, with Tom Hayes and Tony Pye, the, the three musketeers, the complete bollocks. And so, um, you know, it was a difficult time. However, we live and learn. And uh, I went to Ireland and started a stud farm <laughs> and had a, a lot of winning racehorses. So that was a fun period. That's 1992, takes you up to. And um, I'm still here. I have a new band called Hardwick Circus from Carlisle, who are very young, 21-year-old lads, who are quite incredible and causing a bit of a stir. And so that kind of brings me up to date, Tony. Is there a specific area you'd like to uh, dwell on? Well, just listening to what you said, Dave, I mean, I've heard some of the stories over the years and stuff, but, um, you know, your time with Hendrix, I mean, joking apart, you learnt an enormous amount because I imagine you're looking at somebody who's incredibly talented and wonder why he's not worth a fortune. So you took that into your own management and, and label and stuff and things because you talk about 10 years at Stiff, but it was only two years with Jake, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, not two years, actually. Uh, 14 months, uh, three days and two hours. <laughs> the last two I, hours was great. I counted the time. Um, no, Jimmy, what did Jimmy teach me? He's a lovely guy. He's a genuine guy, not, not hugely educated. Um, he, you know, he, he would say yes to a lot of things and really mean no. You know, we had a couple of heart-to-hearts where I said, look, Jimmy, you know, if you, you just say no. It's no problem. You can say fucking no. I don't mind what you say, but try and be straightforward with me. I'm your tour manager. I have to, I have to address you to other people. And if you, keep, if you get flaky about it, everyone gets flaky. The other thing is, you know, it's about time you got your fucking guitar in tune. You know, it's just fucking out of tune all the fucking time. Uh, and I can't see that that's a great advantage to you. You're constantly tuning it as you play, and yet you're one of the great players in the world. Your management and your record company are shafting you big time, but I can't really say that immediately. And, and you signed a lot of stuff when you weren't thinking about it and you didn't have a lawyer. So I learned all of that. I learned that management and record companies did not have an artist's best interest in mind. There was all the... There's all the rank and file in the record company who are really into it because they really cared about it and they really would go over hot coil uh, coals to make the thing work. But the actual management and record companies did not have the right attitude and were not really promoting the right music. I like the music. The record companies don't are not even interested most of the time in the music. They're not, you know, major record companies, you know, could give two damn. I mean, Simon Cowell, 
he just steals from his artists. That's, he sits back there with that big grin on his face, thinking, oh, there's a quite a good one. I can rip him off for a few mil, you know, and ditch him when, when his day is done, which won't be long. It's, um, it's, a, it's a business where the record companies steal from the artists and management run their whole operation around the talent of a songwriter stroke musician who has spent a lot of time honing their music. However, musicians also you've got to keep an eye on because they, <laughs> they're very big on the Brutus game, which is stabbing you in the back if you don't kind of keep an eye on them. You know, they will do anything to make it. And uh, if you're the body in the way, you could very easily get uh, shafted yourself. So it's, a, it's an interesting business it's called the entertainment business. And really, uh, there's some great stuff in it. But there's an awful lot of sh shit, and you oh. know, you know, you know that you've had to carry a lot of it up and down the motorway for years. That was just pretty. <laughs> there's a guy called Peter Collins who lives in Nashville, and he's a great producer in my book. He produced 18 hits for Stiff in a row by by the borderline people. He's very good at the borderline people. And he asked me at one point. He said, um, "Dave, why don't you give me one of your big bands to produce?" And I said. Unfortunately, Pete, you're too good with the crap. I'll have to keep you there because you're too good with it. I can't let it. And we're still friends. We're still friends and we're still talking every, every week from Nashville. So there have been some great people in this business. There have been great people all around, musicians, songwriters, workers in the company, promotion men. All these kind of people, but they've been at the beck and call of the manager stroke agent stroke record companies. And that's what consistently needs to be addressed. Streaming, streaming is just a joke, unfortunately, for record companies. They don't make any product. They don't distribute anything. <laughs> they don't do anything. They just take these long catalogs that they haven't paid all the royalties for. And the, and the people are dead and they don't do anything about tracking down the estates of the people or the grandchildren or whatever of, of who really own these catalogs and they make a fortune. There's a guy called King Gillette and you'll be aware of him because you is shaving your head so often. <laughs> he's, uh, he's, uh, he invented the safety razor and his uh, favorite motto, which I really like, he says, what's wonderful about my business is I make all my money while I sleep because that's when men's hair grows. <laughs> and that's what streaming for a major record company is all about. Well, there you have it. The always entertaining Dave Robinson. And you can tell what he thinks about the music industry. There's more to come from Dave in weeks to come. And there's one previous one. So we call that part two because it's a... Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Second part, and the next one is, you guessed it, part three. Ah, some very fond memories from back in the day. I had the pleasure of working with Stiff Records for a good few years. Um, this is my kind of tone alone section, which I kind of stick in when I hear certain interviews and it reminds me of periods in my career. Um, I was started selling records in 1974, but 1978, I kind of progressed into um, my first role in PR. And one of the first things I did was working with Stiff Records, who had a licensing deal with Island Records, which was the company that I was working for. And... Um, they had some classic uh, early tours. Just to give a little bit of uh, history, Stiff was formed in 1976, uh, lasted for 10 years, although um, Dave Robinson's partner, Dave Robinson, of course you heard, uh, was Jake Riviera, and they fell out, and uh, Jake left after two years and formed his own record label, taking Elvis Costello with him. Uh, it didn't last for long, it was called Radar Records. And um, the label was started with a £400 loan from Lee Brillo from Dr Feelgood, who Dave Robinson managed for a while. And uh, in '77 they had um, their first stiff tour, and they had some great, like, kind of uh, slogans to to match it, um, which escaped me immediately. Um, But uh, that tour had Elvis Casello and Attractions, Ian Jury and the Blockheads, Nick Lowe featuring Dave Edmonds, a few others. Uh, the tour I worked was 1978, which had Rachel Sweet, Lena Lovitch, Mickey Jupp, Reckless Eric, and Joan Louie. That was known as the Be Stiff Tour. Uh, tickets were £1.60, which is what, maybe $1.20, and uh, $1.80 on the door. So not bad value for money. Um, Stiff went on to sign people like uh, Madness, The Pogues, Kirsty McCall, Tracy Ullman. They put out my, my Devo. And they were known for having the first punk single in uh, 1976, New Rose by The Damned. So um, they kind of really left 
a mark on um, certainly the music scene in the UK. Like I said, Jake left in 78. They had some great slogans. Paul Conroy, who you may have heard on the podcast last week. If not, it's worth checking back um, on our uh, podcast site and uh, looking for uh, the interview with Paul Conroy last week. Paul Conroy uh, came into Stiff Records as the marketing manager. Came up with some great slogans. Um, the world's most flexible record label. We came, we saw, we left was another one I remember. Um, the classic, if it ain't stiff, it ain't worth a fuck, <laughs> which that T-shirt's done. Another one, when you kill time, you murder success. And, um, yeah, and uh, they put a compilation album out in 1978. Um, and it said everyone born in 45 will be 33 and a third. Excellent. And um, what else did they have? There's, there's some wacky things going. But um, one thing that springs to mind immediately was the Stiff Tour, the B-Stiff Tour of 1978 with the artists I just mentioned on it. And um, my job was to get them on radio and television. So I organised with the local TV company where I lived in Manchester, which was Granada Television. I actually had the first TV appearance of Elvis Costello, actually, as well as Blondie and the Sex Pistols and the Beatles. They were legendary with uh, coming first with music. Um, so what we did was we recruited a crew to come to Piccadilly, Radi- Railway, Piccadilly Railway Station in Manchester to film the band coming in because it was kind of kind of weird and funky. And um, so I got the crew kind of out there and Stiff um, managed to have the train coming in backwards on another platform. So where the f- camera crew were, they were supposed to be waving out the window and they, uh, they ended up waving to a bunch of nobodies. The crew were completely confused. The band got off the, the um, train, and then all of a sudden the power went off. So our job then was to kind of haul the crew and the TV presenter onto the train, uh, which was in total darkness, so people were walking around with torches. Of course, stiff being stiff, everybody thought this was part of the scam, and they got away with it. Anyway, nice little story, because uh, it's, it's like 45 years ago, but I remember it so vividly. And Dave Robinson, who um, you heard from earlier, and um, you will hear from again. It's just an amazing raconteur with some incredible stories. He told you about tour managing Hendrix in the 60s. There's a story there where he went around to meet him at his apartment and the first time uh, he knocked on the door, Hendrix opened the door with a hairnet on. I mean, that's one of those moments you can kind of picture, right? Anyway, enough of that. It's just nice to have some of my own personal memories thrown into there. So you are listening to moments that rock and uh, in Moments That Rock, we feature uh, interviews, archive interviews with artists and industry insiders. Of course, Dave is that. And this man is um, very much an artist to the extent that he's a knight. He's uh, reached knighthood status. His name is Ray Davis, or Sir Ray Davis. And this is part two of uh, an interview I did um, some 25 years ago. So, Ray Davis. Welcome to the bit where we plunder the archives and dig deep and find interviews from way back then. Today's Way Back Then is part two of Ray Davis talking about his unauthorised biography. Do you, do you find, um, like you say, 19 is quite young to come up with a song that's still remembered 30 years later. Do you find, did you find songwriting quite easy? Um... Well, the fact that you're still writing No, it's never, it doesn't get any easier. It wasn't easier, easy then. Uh, in the book, I describe how I embarked on being a songwriter. And it, I think what I wanted to do was make blues music. But when I suddenly had You Really Got Me as a hit, there I was, 19 years old, with this hit record, my fifth song, 
that I'd written now being put on a conveyor belt where I had to keep producing material. I didn't have the experience of living on the Mississippi or living in Memphis, Tennessee. So I, I, the, the music was raw and blues-oriented, but, but the, the lyrics were from my experience of living in London. It's so that be, was odd, an odd combination. It's got to be better than singing about cruising down boulevards if you haven't been there, though. I have been down Hollywood Boulevard. That's the song. But did in you fact, at 19? Section, yeah. But that was later on. I mean, that's when I lived in just off the Hollywood Boulevard. That's quite a sleazy part of my, my life. That's, that's quite... I had to approach that. That was a very difficult part to write. It was a hard book to write because I... People have said it's a very self-critical book. And I think I didn't want to paint a, a glamorous picture of myself. And the Hollywood Boulevard sequence, I think what it means, that, that, that section of the book, is even though it was a seedy period in my life, I think a, a, a beautiful song came out of it. And uh, you, I, I really think you have to experience these things to write about them. When you say it's seedy, I mean, I've not got up to that <laughs> bit yet. Is it seedy in as much as it's, it's typical sort of L.A.? Um, well, what's typical L.A.? Well, I mean, L.A.'s probably lost its day, hasn't it? So I suppose it has to go well, through. L.A. thinks from the, from the belly button downwards. That's where the brain is. <laughs> Decadence. Yeah. So do you look back at that period in your life that you could, you could have lived without? Are you glad you went through it? Um, I, I don't regret anything, and I make no apologies. But when I signed, I had a signing today, and obviously it, people have come up and they say, well, you sign it to me and my daughter. I said, well, you read it first, and then... Let your daughter read the bits you want her to read. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough, very honest. Yeah. Um, you were obviously satisfied with the book and you knew when it was finished. I mean, mm. if, if there had been anything there that you're quite sh not quite sure about, would you have waited two, three, four, five years for it to be published and come out? Or yeah, would you have just had to live with what was there and condense it? With what's there. You know, you can edit and edit and edit. And if I had my way, I'd still be remixing Sunny Afternoon. The record wouldn't have come out because I wanted to keep remaking things. But obviously I can improve it. But the book stands now. It, it exists. And um, I, I'm pleased with the result. Um, obviously you can always refine things forever and ever and ever. Maybe next time. Is this, is this like, I mean, there seems to be a lot of activity with Ray Davies, the person with the book, and, the, and there's the compilation, the To the Bone coming out, which I suppose mm. there have been other Kinks compilations. I mean, mm. wh why now? Is it like the 30-year thing? No, I think the To the Bone thing is the To the Bone. I can't say the thing. Um, <laughs> the film as well, eh, maybe? The film, well, we did we did a sort of an unplugged at Conk Studios, and we also videoed some of our tour that we did last year in the UK and America. And it's a lot of the old songs, but played now. There's a really nice version of Waterloo Sunset and uh, things like Tired of Waiting. Also, we've recorded, and that's going to come out uh, another time, uh, lots of the lesser-known tracks. So um, it's interesting in that, it's yes, records people have, have bought before on the compilations, but this is us playing them this year. Which is different. Yeah. Mm. Did you, did you ever hear that Kinks compilation um, tribute album that came out from a local label around here, Imaginary? With with various bands. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a great. Laugh out of that. I yeah. mean, what, one of my favourite Kinks songs ever was "See My Friends." You yeah. know, and there was a band from here called the Chameleons who had yeah. a group called the Splinter Group called the Reeks. A couple of guys. It's an amazing version of that, but it does not make you go back and listen to like the original version. Yeah. I mean, that's probably like, you know, one of the. Yeah. I don't know one of the cult kings tracks. I mean, do you oh, look yeah. upon that as a, one of your strong? It is, particularly the recording we've got on the bone. 
um, al album. It's an interest. It's more acoustic driven. So they're all re, re, re sort of mixed. It's us, it's us sitting down in the studio in like a rehearsal situation with a few fr invited friends in, and we built a little set like the front room of a house, you know, oh, great. the parlour of a house. So it's got a completely different feel to it than just the greatest hits around. Yeah, and it's uh, it's just got a, it's got a lot of charm about it. But it's also got a great ver live version of All Day and All the Night, which to me, which opens the album, which is really the definitive killer performance. <laughs> <laughs> and that's coming from you, eh? Yeah, and that is a great, well, from us, our definitive yeah. performance of All Day and All the Night. Wonderful stuff. So um, I suppose what we've got to look forward to is, is the sort of rare tapes emerging at Sotheby's next, haven't they? Yeah. Well, no, we've got a single coming up, I think, if they can get the tapes organised, because it's a Christmas rush in the pressing plants. <laughs> and um, we're, They're bringing out a, a single of the new recording of Waterloo Sunset, which you really got me on it, and I've included two demos we did in the 70s that have never been released before. Have you got and some people might say, no, we know why, once they've heard them, but... <laughs> that I, I, I could have remixed them and, and, and tarted them up to sound really good, but I wanted them to be like period pieces, and they sound... It, it's very of the mid-'70s period, and two tracks, one's called Elevator Man and a ballad called On the Outside. So there's something from the old sort of mid-period kinks as well. Is that... I mean, looking at the stuff, I mean, there was a sort of period, I suppose, from the, in, into the 80s where there weren't any hits, were they, with the kinks? I mean, all of it came, like, from the 60s into the 70s. I think, well, this country, we, we really sort of went to town in the UK. You know, we had four hits a year. We just churned them out, and the albums as well, and the EPs. And then we went to America. We got we were banned. And in the book, I explain, go into detail about the first tour of America, which was a catastrophe. Uh, but luckily, we survived. And a lot of people went to America and never came back. Do you think that was timing, going to America at the wrong time? Uh, no. Well, on, on the surface, it was a perfect time to go to America because everybody, it was the British invasion and everybody was conquering America. But the kinks being the kinks really screwed it up. And... Um, what I, mean, was I it? won't give it away because it's in the book. It's, mm. it's, 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 it's an interesting time, but it left a real scar on us. So what happened, when we finally got our visas, uh, they gave us visas, um, uh, really the end of the 70s, we made a concerted effort to go back and we had to start from the bottom. This is a band that's had like 21 hits all over the world and big album success, going to America to starting again, playing in colleges and clubs. But that did us a service in a way because we built a new audience and in the mid 80s it all culminated in this huge album success in the states uh unfortunately the kinks being a sort of band that has to be seen live we couldn't really perform much here and it was just before videos really you had videos to, you know now you can tour everywhere because you've got a video on television or on the chart show or on mtv people think you're actually around yeah. But we couldn't do it then, in, in, in the end of the 70s, early 80s. But it was a video, Come Dancing, that we made that really broke us finally all over the world in our second coming, as it were. It was an amazing tool, isn't it? Presumably you're doing a video for all day and all the night, are you just through uh, necessity? Well, no, we've got it. We've got it on video, the, the performance on video from the live concert. So you're just going to use that? Yeah. Would you, would you feel a bit strange, like, you know, after all these years having to go and sit there and spend, like, a day or so making videos just for the sake of MTV and stuff? No, I think it's uh, it's a, an interesting addition to what I do. Uh, it's I love video. I, I love making films. And... Presumably you'd have to have a say in the storybook and everything with your own song. Not really. I think 
a lot of videos now, eye popping video, of course, I've used the word eye popping, but it's, uh, it's a question of cutting images together. I like to use a narrative in my video because I like stories, but that's not really a very commercial and fashionable idea. I think a video is just there to sell the product. You worked in television, didn't you? Yeah, I've directed and written a few things for TV. Really? Yeah, yeah. Do you still do any of that now? Well, uh, the next project I'm doing is a feature. It, it was a, it's actually a, a story I started to write about ten years ago, in about the time I lived in New York, and it found it didn't work. I couldn't resolve the story, so I started writing a script. The extremely talented Sir Raymond Davis, as he's known now, he got the CBE before his knighthood, I interviewed him in his late 40s, and uh, he's 77 now. He's known as the godfather of Britpop, and quite rightly so. I mean, when you look at Oasis and Blur, I mean, it pales into comparison, really, with uh, the stuff that he did. When he was 20, he wrote All Day and All of the Night, and you really got me. That's quite incredible. And, um, yeah, he's got six elder sisters and one younger brother, who was in the band, of course, Dave. And um, his father, interestingly enough, worked in the slaughterhouse, and so did his father. So Dave wrote some songs instead of going to work in a slaughterhouse. Next week on Moments That Rock, if I get it done in time, you will be hearing an archive interview with Bono and the Edge. We have several programmes um, coming over the coming weeks about you two. Uh, stuff that I did myself and uh, people like Malcolm Gary, who you heard on Moments That Rock in a previous podcast, talk to, talking about the making of Red Rocks. It's all really good, so hang in there. Way Back Then is part of Moments That Rock, where we dig deep into the archives, dust them down and deliver them. More archive interviews next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.